Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. This is second captains at the Irish Times after a bad, bad week for Manchester United, but quite a good week for football punditry, I thought. Roy Keane giving an all-time performance on Tuesday night and John Giles following up last night by calling Robin Van Persie a prat. Keen first, Ken. Mm. You probably couldn't design a better occasion to suit Roy Keane's punditry style than the defeat in Athens. Keane rarely gives huge tactical insight in his role as an ITV pundit, but regularly trumpets the importance of fight and passion and desire and these kind of elements. That can wear thin sometimes when you really are looking for some tactical nuances. But I thought on Tuesday, the thing that was great about Keane was that he was right in large parts. Yeah, uh, well, I agree with what you're saying. Oh, most of mostly when he's on, he doesn't really get into technical or tactical aspects of the game. He might sometimes say they need to get closer to them. They need to start putting in some tackles. I, I want to see some one twos. Let's see. Let's see a few little one twos. You know, as opposed to, but rarely will he go much further than that because that I don't think that's really what he's interested in about about football, <laughs> and. Uh, and this was this was really the perfect occasion for for what he does bring, which is a, a damning assessment of the character failings of all the people involved in what we've just been watching. Yeah, the skill levels, uh, the the tactical awareness of the manager. This is all stuff that Roy is not really massively interested in. Mm. Really, he's interested in does he like it up him, basically. But what I thought, what I think is really interesting about him is that. He still cares so much about it. He looked so angry. He actually seemed to care more than any of the Manchester United players. I, I mean, really. You know, I don't mean... He looked a lot angrier to me than Rio Ferdinand did walking off that pitch or, or Robin Van Persie. Are you going to mention Michael Carrick? Well, because Mike, that's what seemed to get Keane particularly angry. And I, that's the one part where I thought it was the most entertaining part of Roy Keane's night. When, when it but came Michael like, Carrick, come on. I don't know what he was supposed to say in the interview, particularly when the questions were... One or two of them were fairly loaded. And why would Did you, you say let it? yourselves down? Ugh. 
Yeah. What's he supposed to say? And why would you say it when you look at what Van Persie's had to put up with? Well, that's the, there's, there's the point. That, that's exactly the point. You know, Van Persie actually does talk about the game in the in the interview with the Dutch journalist because that's what Dutch footballers sometimes do. They actually talk about the football that just happened, and sometimes that says that involves highlighting mistakes that they felt the team made, which I suppose highlight mistakes that their teammates made. Michael Carrick. I mean, it was just interesting to watch the two videos. You don't need to speak Dutch. You can see Van Persie and this Dutch journalist are having something that looks like a conversation between two friendly acquaintances. Mm. And they're chatting away about the game and kind of interrupting each other at times. And Van Persie's like, yeah, 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 you know. I think we, uh. And then he says all this stuff about how, you know, teammates are footballing in my zones. And get out of my zones, teammates. You know, and he's saying, yeah, I had to adjust for that. And he also mentioned, by the way, that he missed the he missed the simple chance that he really should have put away. And he said that a couple of times. And he and the only named player that he criticised was actually himself. I didn't see any of that reported in the in the headlines, which ended up getting him called a prat by by uh, John Giles, who read out just a you know one section of what he's of what he was saying. Michael Carrick's interview with Gabriel Clark was the Republican prisoner being interrogated by the RUC <laughs> model that we're quite familiar with. Um, you know, name, rank, serial number. Uh, we're all Say disappointed. Nothing, but don't quote me on that. Exactly. And, uh, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that Michael Carrick knows if he says anything about what he thinks really happened in that game, he will end up getting ripped apart like maybe Van Persie's or, or being accused of having slammed his... His teammates, uh, you know, uh, people said that they, he didn't show passion. That was their point. That uh, I saw a lot of this on Twitter. He didn't show any passion. Well, Michael, Michael Carrick. Carrick has never really been much of a, a very animated talker. He speaks with the ball, you know. And uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, Roy Keane. This is it. This is it. The thing about Roy Keane. Michael Carrick's wife wrote on Twitter for about five seconds before she deleted it. Roy Keane, what a dick, I suppose, was, was the word. It's the, another four-letter word. A four-star word. Um, quite a few he'll say anything words. to get a reaction, you know? And I assume that what she meant by that was Roy Keane is like a, a sort of a dancing monkey who will just come out with, who courts controversy for attention and, and money. Uh, that, that's, I assume, the sense in which she meant it. Keane might say, of course I'm looking for a reaction. Of course, that's why I say these things. You know, I want to wreck. You know, like he was saying um, recently, the, the the players who I would criticize are the players who I cared about. You know, they're the ones who I wanted to see. But you know, if, if I'm not talking about you, that's when you got to be worried. Mm. Of course, I'm looking for a reaction. But is that really? Is that really true? I don't think it's particularly forced with Keane, though. It's not. It's not at all. This no. is the point. Yeah. It's not. A, I think that when he says, "I'm looking for a reaction," you know, I, I want to see you. I want to see you get angry. You know, challenge your anger. Let's see challenging your anger from in the performances. Players. Yeah, if you, from from the players. Yeah. You know, that's why I I incessantly criticize you because you could see in that in in that in that ITV post match thing, which only lasts a couple of minutes, how awful it would be to be in a dressing room with Roy Keane after a bad result. And if it would be bad as one of his teammates, imagine how much worse it would be as one of his players if he was the manager. Because he's going to say a lot of, a lot of terrible things. He's going to call into question your, your character, your manhood. You know, it's, it's all going to be questioned. It's all going to be out there. And he's not, he doesn't hold back. And he would say, I'm looking for a reaction. And frequently... He'll get when you know the players will start crying or you know whatever. There there'll be a bit of a reaction. Um, at least when he was a player, 
he was out there in the field and usually playing better than you. So when he when he came to you in the dressing room and when it was your time to absorb a little bit of the, the criticism that you deserve for, for what had gone wrong out there, he was speaking from that position of authority of, of having been a better player than you in the game. Yeah, I would imagine swear. he would tone you, it down just, as a manager. You're just though. sucking it up. As a manager, I think a lot of the players might have come to the conclusion. After, not, I'm not talking about something after one game or two games, but maybe after repeated games, a number of games, some of them might be thinking, all this guy does is sit on the bench thinking of terrible ways to insult me in front of all my teammates. You know, I'm... I, I'm crushed now. I'm broken. You are making you know, the assumption here when it gets, that when as it a gets manager, to the interview, you know, when it's the, the interview, it's literally anything Michael Carrick could have done. There would have there would have been something. <laughs> so when Roy Keane says, "I'm looking for a reaction," I think it's probably a post hoc kind of a, a rationalization of what he does. You know, it's sort of he. Uh, this is just how he feels because he cares so. He clearly cares. Yeah, but hold on a second. He you're, still cares more about Manchester United's rules than the players who are playing. You're for making them. an assumption that as a manager, he is goes on the exact same way as he did, and maybe even more so than he did as a captain. I think as a manager, if he's anything about him and at all... And as a pundit. Yeah, if he's a manager, if he's anything about him at all, he isn't going into those tirades after every bad result. Mm. There are stories that, that Keane was not quite as calm behind the scenes yeah. as he appeared to be on the sideline as, as a manager all, in the few clubs he's all been we with. Know, all, all we can say, I mean, I've never been in a, in a dressing room of a Roy Keane-managed team uh, who've just had a bad result. So, you know, I can't speak with authority about that situation. I have, however, seen Roy Keane speak many times after results that, that have annoyed him even though he wasn't you know, on the team. And I, I see the kind of way, the sort of things that he says or the, the, sort of, the, the kind of things that come out of his mouth. You know what I mean? The sort of, the way that he thinks about these things. I, 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 do you think that he's a completely different person in the, in the dressing room just because he happens to be the manager? I think that if you're going to make it as a manager, you do have to temper some of your natural instincts. You don't have to become a totally different person. But Alex Ferguson, as he matured as a manager, lost some of that Roy Keane-type fire that he brought to it in the early days. I think he'd say that himself and most of the Manchester United players. And even going back further, forget about Man United, Aberdeen and the other Scottish clubs he was at. I can only imagine what Ferguson was like back then. But to make it, you do have to... Again, we don't know exactly what goes on in the Roy Keane dressing room, but if he's going to be a manager long-term, a successful manager long-term... He can't react to every defeat, and I can only assume he's not reacting to every defeat as he did to the United defeat as a pundit on yeah, Tuesday. Well, I, I can see um, him reacting by not saying anything. I can't see him reacting. I can, I can see him by. I can see him reacting by walking out of the dressing room and not saying anything. That's the best reaction I could possibly. I can't see Roy Keane coming in and saying, "Well, but, listen, tonight wasn't our night. You know, we haven't played that well tonight. Let's be honest here. You know, maybe we can sit back." Uh, get you know, get back to Manchester tomorrow morning. We'll have a little meeting about it, and we'll discuss in a calm, you know, constructive manner. constructive manner what we think went wrong and where we can go from here. Right. I can see him walking out and sitting on the front seat of the bus and waiting for the players to shower and get on the bus and say nothing to them for three days. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but but think back to what he said the other night. You know, uh, when he made this point about Carrick. The, you know this, this the interview was just didn't cut it either it was flat and uh, like his performance like his performance and uh, and I think Adrian Child said well what do you think he should have done or something along those lines and Keane essentially was like say something more you know get, do do more and so that's that's kind of his attitude I don't think he's the kind of guy who will accept a, a defeat with equanimity you you see how angry it makes him it actually makes him like this wasn't even his team. 
It's a team he used to play four years ago. Ten and years he's ago. more angry than the players who are currently playing. That's, that, that is essentially what makes him, kind of what made him what he, the type of player that he was, that it makes him irrationally angry beyond what's normal in, in football players, you know, to, to get that angry better result, which is which I think was why he was so is such a competitive player. And also maybe is why he has a tendency to, to react very strongly when, uh, when these things happen. You might remember the interview we conducted with Rosemary Smith before Christmas. She was a great rally driver in the 1960s. Yeah, going back to back to the sixties, beating many of the best male drivers in and right the world. The 70s and 80s, yeah. yeah, at that time. Um, the reason I bring that up is that we're going to do a piece today about Formula One, which uh, in which it's still a rarity to have a female driver. Susie Wolf is going to be part of the Williams team for this year, but that may just be a PR stroke, according to Beverly Turner. Now, Beverly worked on ITV's coverage of Formula One. Uh, just over 10 years ago, she spent three years as a pit lane reporter and wrote uh, a book about it, which revealed the probably misogynistic underbelly of the whole Formula One sport, Formula One business. She's pretty well placed to talk about this. So we'll ask Beverly about her own experiences and what she thinks about this uh, latest attempt to try to improve the situation. And we're going to talk to Bernard Jackman about Philippe Saint-André at France, uh, whether or not the players are going to take things over, whether Saint-André will be sacked. Saint-André managed to coach French into the wooden spoon position last year. And kept his job. And kept his job. And now he's having, well, this was they got past England, but they were absolutely destroyed by Wales. And he's still in the job. Probably, I think the consensus is that it's good for Ireland if he stays in there because it doesn't seem like he's getting anything out of the players. But we'll talk yeah. to Bernard, who's coaching. You're not sure? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think that there is probably an improvement you know, the the immediate post-sacking improvement that you, yeah. we could be wary of. But at the same time, you know, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, a strange, it's, it's a very strange one because, you know, you should be kind of judging a game on its merits, right? We're going to Paris. This is going to be very tough. Now, when you're getting into, do you want the, a player-led French team, a manager-led French team? I'm just a little scared that... We have of all of the years going to Paris, we literally don't have a clue. It's funny what though, yeah, I know. We, but the season so far, we've gotten quite a few breaks. People might say we were unlucky to lose to England. Let's say England were the better team and deserved the win. We got our break in that France lost England in the first game. Mm. We got another break that Wales then beat France. We got the chance to puncture the Welsh bubble before England did. So far, exactly, yeah. Mm. Maybe if it had been the fixture had been the other way around, it could have been trouble. So it seems like a few good things are happening, and the French being in disarray. Leads uh, feeds into that quite yeah. nicely, I think. We'll talk about that later on with Bernard Jackman anyway. It's time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series. Brian Murphy, I'm told that you come to us this week from Arizona, spring training. Kind of giving you guys a tour of the United States, aren't I? Mm-hmm. I mean, we did what? New York once, we did Pebble Beach once, we've done San Francisco many, many, many times. And now from the desert, boys, where I know you guys aren't huge baseball guys over there, but for, uh, 
for us old soul Americans here, this is one of the great moments in American sport, the beginning of spring training. I'm literally watching the San Francisco Giants rifling baseballs back and forth here on the outfield grass, and it's about, it's about 15 guys, uh, 30 guys playing catch, 15 different pairs, and the sound of the ball popping into the leather glove repeatedly sounds like rifle fire, and it's, uh, it's rhythmic, it's beautiful. Uh, themes of rebirth and renewal, boys, so I'm fired up. Are they looking good out there, Brian? <laughs> Everybody's in the best shape of their lives. This is going to be the year. It's going to be different than last year. It's so funny. Every team in every team in Major League Baseball is saying the exact same thing. It's a joke every year. The writers and the media say, "Man, can't they just say to us, man, I'm not feeling too good this year. I think we're going to have a bad year this year." And I don't know. I don't like our squad this year. You know, everybody. It's like after the NFL draft. You know, everybody has the best draft in the world. Well, in baseball in February and especially March and then April, everybody's got the best team going. So it's uh, it's uh, the Giants are looking to make amends actually after they won the World Series in 2012 and then fell off the map in 2013. So, but one of these teams is going to win the World Series, that's for sure. It seems like a pretty good access there, Brian. I'm, I'm trying to think about Premier League soccer teams on their preseason tours. There's a certain amount of media access, obviously, but I don't know how much of the training will be held out in the open. What, what, what's the situation there at spring training? Can reporters yeah. and can, can hardcore fans come from San Francisco and watch? It's such a great point you make there that, and it's almost like I'm almost afraid to bring it up because it's almost like jinxing it. It is amazing access, especially in this multi-layered, multi-message-shaped uh, you know, uh, message shaped 2014 environment we live in, in which no athlete ever says anything without it running it through seven handlers first. And no athlete is granted uh, access without, you know, you have to get, you get shot by stun guns if you get near a, a Premier League soccer player, right? Yeah. Well, this is the only time where baseball, where in American sports, you really have up close and personal access, both as a media member and as a fan. The park I'm sitting in right now as I'm, I'm talking to you guys is called Scottsdale Stadium, and it seats about um, eight, nine, ten thousand people, whereas you know the big league parks seat fifty thousand people. So we're talking about one fifth, uh, one sixth of the size, and you are right on the field. So these players are playing catch right in front of me, and you can really reach out and touch them if you want. Now, you, I wouldn't advise that. Nobody wants to be touched. But uh, the access for the play—it's it, almost like uh, it's almost sinfully good. Uh, up, up close and personal you get and how much you get to watch fans can just come in and watch them practice and watch them work out and it really 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 reconnects you with baseball and you don't get it anywhere else so thank god they're still doing it this way another slightly uh well, it's maybe a much newer tradition but another one of these nfl american sport rituals was going on earlier in the week the nfl combine finished on <laughs> tuesday you're laughing already brian tell us what is the nfl combine holy smoke <laughs> has this thing this thing has rocketed into prominence. It only really, guys, I would say even in the last just two, three, four years. I mean, you and I have been talking longer than the NFL Combine has been getting this kind of coverage. And it's a combination of a couple of things. One, um, just the kind of the more media layers we have everywhere, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever you want, Instagram. But also the fact that the NFL network itself has risen into prominence, and that's a TV channel devoted strictly to the National Football League, and they need programming. You know, I mean, they, they have programming during the year. They can talk about games and injuries and coaches and strategies 
during the year. But when the year is over, what do you do? Well, you just talk about football in the off season. Well, you can only do that so long. And when you have something going on, you're going to televise it. So what the NFL network is doing now is going to this thing called the NFL scouting combine and televising it almost wall to wall guys, almost all day long. And what is the scouting combine? You ask it's where college players who want to be drafted by NFL teams go to be measured as an athlete. And by that, I mean the very basic things. They're not playing football. They are getting weighed in their underwear in front of an entire room of men with clipboards. They are being judged in a 40-yard dash that everybody looks at and just sits in the stands and watches. This goes down in Indianapolis at the uh, Colts home field, Lucas Oil Field Stadium, because it's a, a midway point in the country for all the teams to fly in. They are tested on a standing broad jump. These are things you did in elementary school, right, when you were doing your fitness tests. And we watch it all with our jaws open. We say, oh, my God, look at Johnny Manziel's standing broad jump. Oh, my God, look at Jadavian Clowney's 40-yard dash. Oh, my God, look at Blake Bortles. Uh, as they measure their hand size, they measure the length of their arms, and this stuff is immediately put out on the Internet in graph form. So you now have there's a hot quarterback named Blake Bortles out of Central Florida. You guys could theoretically, if you wanted to, go to the NFL.com, combine, click on the combine, and you guys could have like kind of an anatomy, like a Leonardo da Vinci anatomy breakdown of Blake Bortles' arm length, his hand size, his height, and his weight to the eighth of an inch, boys. This is the NFL landscape we are living in, and we all have access to it, and we're all watching it. Crazy, yeah, Brian, it sounds to me, I have an image of Dolph Lundgren and Rocky Four in my mind, with all these wires <laughs> hanging out of him, uh, the approving nods by doctors with clipboards, uh, although it, the only difference being that in Rocky Four, I don't think that information was freely available to all the uh, the Russian fans <laughs> of, of the character. It's, it's crazy stuff. Do, do, how important is this to the players? Do scouts take more stock of this one day, this one tryout than they do of an entire three or four year college career? That's a, I mean, you've hit on the essential question on it is, oh my God, how much overemphasis is going on here and how much useful information is truly gathered here? Or are we just killing time until the opening day of the season? You can have arguments on both sides of the fence. Uh, in fact, when, the, when the, the combine started, it was very interesting because we're all so obsessed with it now and we're all talking about Johnny Manziel's 40 time and we're all talking about Jadavian Clowney's 40 time and all that. But Doug Baldwin, who was a wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, he took to Twitter and he said, I'm about to go on a rant here. And he sent out a five-tweet rant, which represented the other side. He said, for the next week, you guys are going to be told about hand size, and you're going to be told about standing broad jumps, and you're going to be told about uh, how they run the shuttle cones. They run in and out of cones. He said, I just want you guys to remember that there was a quarterback who was said that he was too small to ever be in the NFL, and he's a Super Bowl champ. There's a cornerback who has said he was too tall to ever play the game, and he's the best corner in the game. There was a linebacker who was thought to be too slow and not didn't have good lateral movement enough, and he was Super Bowl MVP. So, guys, go ahead and enjoy your NFL combine. And that was Doug Baldwin, who's a Stanford man, a very smart guy, who's a wide receiver for the Seahawks, eloquently dismissing the NFL combine as total mumbo-jumbo because he was talking about in order, Russell Wilson, the Super Bowl quarterback, believed to be too short. Richard Sherman, the cornerback, believed to be too tall. And Malcolm Smith, the linebacker who had the interception returned for a touchdown against Peyton Manning 
in the Super Bowl. All guys who had problems at the Combine and all guys who just had a parade through downtown Seattle. So draw your own conclusions, boys. Yeah, but it sounds like uh, the not this many people will be flying into Indianapolis from all over the country unless they were taking it pretty seriously. And you mentioned Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football, has taken part. Did he impress the scouts? He did, guys. He he ran a 40 that was very, very fast. In fact, what the NFL Network has done now, and they've, they've got this technology down, it's very interesting. They, what they do is they take a guy's 40, and then they go into the archives of, of players from the past who have run 40s, because they all run them in the same place, in the same stretch of turf in Indianapolis, and they're able to superimpose a previous 40 over Johnny Manziel. So you watch, for example, Colin Kaepernick's 2011 40-yard dash superimposed over Johnny Manziel's 2014 40-yard dash, what? and you get to see them race each other. Yes, it's incredible. It's amazing. It's like a ghost race. And so they kind of ghost the Kaepernick image in, and he races Johnny Manziel. And you see that Johnny Manziel is essentially every bit as fast as Colin Kaepernick. He's only .03 behind him, and Kaepernick only edges him at the very end. Manziel is faster than him for the first 30 yards. So Manziel comes off very well. I mean, we knew he was fast, but his time was super fast. And we know his, his hand size, guys, came off as I think he had the biggest hands of any quarterback. And this is something that GMs and scouts, as much as Doug Baldwin's eloquent anti-combine rant did resonate, there are all sorts of NFL GMs who say, yeah, guess what? I still want to know who has the longest arms because that can bat away a pass if you're a cornerback. I still want to know which quarterback has the biggest hands because statistics show in our studies that bigger hands translates to better ball control, tighter spirals, and fewer turnovers. So as much as there are those of us who deride it as the quote-unquote underwear Olympics, that's what they call them, the underwear Olympics, because these guys are running around basically in, well, they're weighed in their underwear, and then otherwise they're just running around in real tight shorts and tank tops. They're not in football pads or helmets. Those who deride the underwear Olympics are met by those who value the underwear Olympics, and Johnny Manziel came off real well in it. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not the Houston Texans are going to take him as the number one overall pick, guys. So this guy, Johnny Football, who was so controversial, he won the Heisman his freshman year, and then remember got the huge controversy for signing autographs for money, and then some people thought he was a bit of a Hollywood partier. He started showing up, wanted to hang out with LeBron James at Miami Heat games, but it looks like he's either going to be the the number one or two pick. But then again, you always guys have all this controversy. Uh, Everybody has opinions. And by the way, the draft is not until May. Okay, what is this, February? So we got a little bit of time to chew on this stuff. And Ron Jaworski of ESPN, who's a prominent uh, analyst and a former Super Bowl quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, he came out and said, I would not take Johnny Manziel in the first three rounds of the NFL draft which is a pretty outrageous statement when most people think he could be the number one overall pick. Michael Sam was there trying out the, uh, well, soon to become the first openly gay NFL player. Um, how did he perform in front of the media? I guess it would have been a certain, uh, I don't want to say a circus element, but there would have been a lot of attention on Michael Sam. Yeah, you want to talk about the good and the bad of the combine. Part of the combine is the, the running, the weighing, the, the measuring of the hands, the, 40, the, the broad jump, all that stuff. The other part of the combine is how you handle the media and the team interviews. And for Michael Sam, it was good news, bad news, guys. The good news was he drew the most massive crowd ever to his media session, the biggest crowd any guys, everybody's ever had the NFL combine, and he dazzled with his poise and his eloquence and his maturity 
and everybody just came away very impressed by him and his repeated just kind of ways of saying, I don't want to be Michael Sam, the gay football player. I want to be Michael Sam, the football player. And that was kind of the message he was transmitting. He did it very poised and very impressive. And it's the kind of guy you want, quote unquote, in your locker room, you know, as far as a, a locker room positive presence. But then the bad news is he went out and ran the drills and he did not show well. He ran a very slow 40, which is not good. I think it was in the 493 range where Johnny Manziel was in the 463 range. And Jadavion Clowney, the DN, who we, I remember us talking about him in August as the biggest athletic freak in, in all of uh, college football. I think he ran a 4-4-5 or something like that. And he, if Michael Sam plays the same position, he ran a 4-9. He was dramatically slower. And then his standing broad jump and his height, his vertical jump, did not measure up. And I think his hands were a little smaller. Everything was poor physically. And that does not help him. You know, there were a lot of people who were sort of Michael Sam has engendered a lot of opinions and a lot of scrutiny since he announced he was gay and wanted to play in the NFL. And the more people are studying him now, there's beginning to be a backlash about his football skills in that he showed poorly at the Combine. And now other scouts are saying if you study his college tape, all the sacks that he racked up tended to be against inferior competition. And what you want to see is a guy who can dominate against big-time competition because in the NFL, you're only going against the best. So it was a good news week for Michael Sam for his public performance. It was a bad news week for Michael Sam physically. And I don't even know, guys, if he'll get drafted in the seven rounds. He had been thought of to be a, a third, fourth, or fifth rounder. Maybe he's fallen to the sixth or seventh round at this point. And now it becomes maybe a team taking him, you know, based on his college sack numbers or based on his personality. But his stock dropped, I'd say, overall. As far as I know, Brian, if I can remember correctly, some of those doubts were being expressed already, even in the days after his announcement. But I I guess those doubts are magnified now based on what people have seen. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. He's either good enough or he's not good enough. But I guess one of the keys it was always going to be to see whether or not a, a team was going to have any issue signing the first gay openly gay NFL player now with the football is, is there a chance that he doesn't get drafted at all that he doesn't actually make it to the NFL yeah there is that chance I mean, well, at the very least here's the worst thing that can happen to him. he won't get drafted but he will get signed to a camp in the summertime uh, as what they call an undrafted free agent and and on an, any number of players make rosters as undrafted free agents. In fact, a lot of players do. Lots of times guys miss on scouting evaluations. I mean, we've talked about that. So, I mean, this is like a storm he's going to have to weather. He's going to do another workout, I think, at his uh, college of Missouri, and he could show better there. Maybe he just had to be, you know, maybe he was nervous. Maybe his body didn't respond the way it wanted. But there is, again, this gets back to what we said at the very start of the conversation, which is how much value should you place in the combine and how much value should you place in what he does on the football field? So that's, and this is the eternal question of the combine every year. It's getting to be more, more of a question because of what I talked about earlier, which is the amount of coverage we're seeing. And the amount of coverage is almost shaping people's perceptions and minds. And it's almost like perception becomes reality at a certain point that because if somebody runs a good 40, 
or somebody has a great hand size or somebody runs the cones really well, we start to think of them as a better football player when in actuality, when they actually played football in the fall, they weren't that good. Or conversely, somebody doesn't run the 40 well or doesn't run their shuttle drill well or run in the cones well. When conversely, on the football field, he sacked the quarterback a lot, right? So that's going to be up to the GMs and the teams that make those decisions. I would think of 32 NFL teams, you know, maybe somebody drafts him in the sixth or seventh round and he gets his shot. He's just going to have to prove it on the field, which is what he's wanted to do all along. And parenthetically, on as, as a side note, he's now uh, not even going to be the first uh, openly gay player to play in a major sport because in the time you and I since last talked, Jason Collins, the player who had come out and was not with a team, signed with the Brooklyn Nets and played in a game last Sunday night against the Lakers to become the first American athlete in a major sport uh, not counting the WNBA, counting a male uh, major sport, the NBA, to be an openly gay player. And guess what? The sun rose the next morning, too. Amazing, huh? Reaction was okay, was it? <laughs> you know, it was actually incredibly understated. It was like, it, it, it was almost like exactly what Jason Collins wanted, which is like, oh, guess what? He's a basketball player. He went out, he got a couple rebounds, he picked up a couple fouls, he gave, he, he basically, at this stage in his career, all he can do is give big men a rest because he's not a valuable presence at this stage in his career. He's in his older years, and so he's basically seen as a bench player to give the center a rest. He got like 12, 14 minutes of play. Everybody talked about it. Everybody moved on. All his teammates said the right things, and it was a huge, huge step forward for American sports and society. So Michael Sam even tweeted out his support and appreciation for Jason Collins, who he says is the true pioneer the first openly gay male athlete in a major American sport is in the books. Brian, we'll let you get back to there. We can practically smell the leather of the catcher's <laughs> mitt in Arizona. Enjoy the rest of the session there. I'm going to go get a hot dog and a cold beer. How's that? Sounds good. See you later, Brian. All right, guys. All the best. I don't think I had realised until chatting to Brian there just quite how much of a TV media circus the combine is. It's not just that they show and televise this rather bizarre spectacle of players displaying their strength and their speed mm. and all these other physical attributes. But it's also th- this fictitious race between Kaepernick of a couple of years ago mm. and Johnny Football of now. It's, it's, did, you, did you see this in the Winter Olympics? No. That, you know the, the downhill skiing? So, you know, the, 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 the leader, they, they would show, they'd superimpose the, the person in, the, in first place. Oh, yeah onto the, the run that was happening at that time to see who was ahead. You know, so you could look at the clock, but you could also see the various lines <laughs> that the downhill skiers were taking. It was absolutely brilliant. Like a, a really, it's not really too much information. I kind of like just the little split times. Yeah, well, no, it was a very interesting innovation from the point of view of, right, you can see where the mistake was made. Mm. If someone makes a mistake that loses some time, you can see the actual, the, the line that they took that was too far out to the left or too far out to the right. So it was, I thought it was actually really, really cool. I mean, it's a 40-yard sprint so I suppose it means you know there's a world record for the 100 meters so we we, do, we don't see the Usain Bolt's you know 9.59 is that the world mm, record now 9.58 yeah. 9.58 I think that's it so, you know we don't see it but we you know we, we know what that looks like you know it looks pretty amazing every time you watch a 100 meters race ESPN in their early days one of the first decisions they took was to televise the NFL draft which at the time was seen as a bonkers decision mm. because the NFL draft at that point was consisted of a lot of probably middle-aged men hunkered down around their desks writing little notes to each other mm. and trying not to reveal too much to any prying eyes 
they decided, listen, we're going to televise this. This will work. We need to fill 24 hours of sport a day, so we're going to do this. And ultimately, that became this monster that it is now. It seems like the Combine is at the earlier stage. TV came a lot later to it. Mm. But the NFL Network, in a way, is in a similar situa- situation to ESPN and any other 24-hour sports network. Yeah. Well, NFL I mean, Network, in this case, you've got to get some... one sport. So. get some content out there. And sometimes, almost by accident, as much as design, or by necessity, as much as design, you stumble upon entertaining TV, albeit somewhat... It sounds a bit uneasy to me. There's an un- I have an uneasy feeling about the, that whole yeah. combine. Well, like I mean, it's the NFL Network, and the NFL is... a. 18-week season plus the playoffs, which is four weeks, uh, which leaves 30 weeks where the sport that you're reporting on 24 hours a day isn't actually actually being played. But, I mean, it very quickly became huge TV drama. And that the 30 for 30 on the NFL draft in 1983 is actually one of the best 30 for 30s uh, I've seen. And you get an idea of what ESPN were actually showing when they first started showing the, the, the draft. Coming up later today, Ken. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Twanfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shawny man? Whiteboards, computer equipment, high definition screens, iPads, I think probably even broadband internet. These are the building blocks of the Manchester United of the future. Okay. Uh, David Moyes hasn't sold all that stuff. At uh, Carton. Yeah. Broadband. David iPads. Moyes. David Moyes is responsible for broadband. Yeah, but they, there's also whiteboards. In the event of you know, this is electronic whiteboards. Uh, Interactive whiteboards. If if there's a problem, okay, with the electricity supply, yeah, a catastrophic a catastrophic power failure. The Manchester United Scouting Network can continue to write their targets out on whiteboards arranged around the room. Okay. Uh, and this is one example of the ways in which the club is being dragged into the future. Um, that's reported, They're being dragged somewhere, all right. It was widely reported on uh, today. We're going to talk a little bit about it. You, might, you may recall, though, that we actually talked about a similar setup that Moyes had um, at Everton. Mm. Uh, he called it the Bunker. Um, I always wonder when people call things bunkers, do they not realise that the person in history most associated with the word bunker is Adolf Hitler? And that, uh, and really, if you're gonna if you're gonna have I a little HQ, a little harsh. I think that's a little harsh. Well, who else? Oh, some, some golfer? You're gonna say? Come no, on. no, I'm no, not talking about that kind of. Bunker. No, that, no, that's not what I'm the saying. I'm saying no. I'm saying you've. You know, you can't just say right. Hitler died in a bunker. That means none of us are ever allowed to build a bunker. The Hitler again. bunker. That's what it was called. Well, yeah, but I mean... He's most famously associated with... Name me somebody who's more associated with bunkers so than that's that. That's it, We have to give up on the whole bunker idea. Apart from David no Moyes. No one's allowed to have a bunker. Is that what you're saying? Just because Hitler died in one. So I'm saying I was in a spider hole. Oh, my, my spider hole. Now, if, you, if, you, if David Moyes was to construct a spider hole at the Manchester Standard Training Ground, I would be sitting here saying, why has he constructed a thing which everybody associates with Saddam Hussein? It makes it. no sense. I'm not buying this. You know? We're also going to talk a, bit, a little bit about... Um, whether it's fair, Owen, to tape somebody talking without their knowledge and then play the resulting scandalous audio mm. on national media. Is that fair? And if somebody is caught doing it or, or is, is snared in that way, can you take what they say seriously? 
Should it be taken seriously? Should it be struck from the record? They have these kind of rules in court. You know, certain kinds of evidence is inadmissible because how it, you know, it wasn't fair the way that it, it sort of arose. Maybe we should have that rule in life as well, Owen. And particularly in reporting of the English Premier League. That's all coming up a little bit later on this afternoon. But Susie Wolfe is uh, one of the drivers for Williams this year in Formula One with Philip Massa and Valtteri Bottas. Now, what's interesting is that this should be seen as a breakthrough in a sport that has sporadically featured female drivers over the years. But Beverly Turner in the Telegraph reckons it's just a PR move in a sport that she found to be incredibly misogynistic. I'm laughing just at some of the stories that that she tells and told in a book that she brought out 10 years ago, The Pits, The Real World of Formula One, because they're so um, from another, you would have thought from another time that they're... Uh, hard to believe but they happened that book came out in 2004 10 years ago Beverly thanks very much for chatting to us you were three years working as a pit lane reporter for ITV in Formula 1 which sounds like a dream job but I don't think it really turned out that way no, I think it's fair to say that. Um, oh God, I don't like it when I hear it's 10 years ago. That makes me feel incredibly <laughs> old. Um, so thanks for that. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, I, you know what, I think for a sports fan, it isn't the ideal job. That's what I realised when I was amongst it, that um, although, yes, the drivers are sportsmen and they're very fit and they're very focused and they're very driven, uh, no pun intended, they are actually working within a very sophisticated business setting which is um primarily is is in order to sell cars and to engineer amazing machinery um and the the f1 drivers are under more kind of commercial pressure as a sports person than probably any other sport in the world you know by the end of it i found it really hard to even see it as a sport because you know it's not a level playing field by any stretch of the imagination and um and and i actually felt quite sorry for the drivers by the time i left i thought you know what you want to be doing sport and i think a lot of the time they feel like they aren't um and i'd like to think that things have changed really but uh, i mean they haven't i mean that's the nature of the beast i sound incredibly naive saying this so wow what a revelation but these are my these were just my observations of it at the time as a sports fan actually um and yes i was in the unusual position to be given that that job i used to present other sport on itv and they'd kind of i think they thought we're going to do with her all right we'll stick her in that and um and they moved me on to f1 and i was fully prepared to love it and to fall in love with it and to think this is amazing like this is so glamorous and there's so much money being spent this should be some of the greatest teams in the world we're watching and it just left me a little bit cold actually yeah it's funny i i don't think it really is stating the obvious because i don't know if people think about it enough about what that world is really like inside it and that that's the key that you had three years living it and seeing what it what it's really like as a woman in that sport maybe I should say in that business what how did you what were the attitudes towards you well it was like I think when I wrote the book one journalist described it it seemed like I'd spent three years fighting off Peter Stringfellow in a jacuzzi (laughs) like it was there was something about it that was really old-fashioned really dated a strange attitude to women in the sport that you know it is still the only sport I think that has women stood around in hot pants and brollies holding brollies over drivers on the grid like it's it it does i know cars and girls has this this traditional connection i get that but actually for a sport or a business that is supposed to be at the cutting edge of so much of of what we have available on the planet in terms of technology and engineering that side of things is really old-fashioned and they haven't 
they haven't moved with the times at all. Um, you know, women in, in Formula One are, are there to look good, and the men do do all the action stuff, and that doesn't really seem to have changed. Um, you know, there were there were several anecdotes um, for me but working in that environment that I, I I just thought you're all completely mad. Like I felt like I spent a lot of time being the only sort of same person in, in the room. What sort um, of anecdote? Is there anything you, know, you can think of now, anything in particular that uh, um, might shed a bit of light on it? I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, you know, some of the team, team lead... I remember sitting around a, a table at one of the teams and one of the female presenters from a German channel was um, um, was not going to be working on it anymore and I'd said to one of the drivers and one of the managers, oh, it's a shame, She's, she was really nice to have around, she's smart. And they were like, no, she was just here to be looked at. That's... That's all any, and the actual quote was, but that's all any of you are here for is just to be looked at. And it wasn't, they didn't even say it with any sort of of uh, reconstructed irony. There was nothing. It was just, well, this is how we are here. This is, that's fact. Um, It's interesting, Beverly. Yeah, I mean, like I said. Where do do you think that sort of flowed from in Formula One? I mean, did it sort of come from the top in the the form of Bernie Eccleston? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Like I say, the cars and cars, Cars and girls have always had that strange association, haven't they, of petrol heads? And you think of any, my own father is a mechanic, and there was always calendars in his in his garage that the mechanics would put up of Pirelli girls. Um, and I don't know, very very powerful, very rich men, um, not promoting women. You know, there aren't. There were a few female engineers. There weren't many. Um, and in fact, I remember doing an interview with one of them. I did a piece on women behind the scenes in Formula One, and. Um, for ITV and one of the engineers who was brilliant at her job and I went afterwards and thanked the PR and said, you know, she was great and he said, I know it's a shame she's such a dog otherwise we could use her more. Uh, these and weren't just, but you, you said there was no unreconstructed un- un- irony around it. These weren't just, I'm not, I'm not saying if they were jokes, they were very bad jokes but you got the sense that people weren't even joking when they were saying these things? Well, it was sort of meant to be funny but I just thought that's just not that funny. Like you say, that it's a shame she's a dog we'd be able to use her so much more. I, yeah. it, was, it was just like a, a sort of for, for an industry that you consider to be really unprofessional it was shockingly oh sorry to be professional it was shockingly unprofessional and at the time when I was writing the book there was F1 magazine which I'm not sure even exists anymore but they'd done a 50 most powerful people in, in Formula 1 and they were they were all men you know that's there is not a sport in the world where you could put the 50 most powerful people in that sport and they would all be men like that for me, Formula One is alone. You know, even in football, you could probably find the odd woman who wielded a bit of influence. Um, but uh, yeah, and I'm not sure that's really changed in the last ten years. So, you know, when I see a story like the one this week about Susie Wolf as a test driver, wow, amazing! We're going to have a female Formula One driver. I go, come on, it's not really the story, is it? Let's all let's all be honest about this. Um, she'll be given a little bit of practice and then, you know, she, she put, she's not going to be on a, on a grid anytime soon. So it's a token gesture in, or a PR gesture maybe? PR gesture. I mean, even in the short time that I worked in Formula One, there would be um, women would be brought to motorhomes, female drivers who might have come through the ranks, who'd come through karting and done some championship racing overseas and, and they'd be brought to the motorhome and they'd be quite excited. Maybe this is an opportunity. They'd been tested. They'd, you know, jump through all the hoops. They were physically really strong. They'd have photographs taken with drivers. The tongs would get wagging. Oh, you know, Jackie, we're going to have a female driver. William's going to have a female driver. And then nothing would happen. These women would, you know, it was always around the time of maybe the British Grand Prix when the British press would be interested. Um, 
you know, these women were brought up, uh, terribly tokenistic. And actually, we are just sort of, just totally immoral in terms of the women that do want to come through the ranks. You know, women being used as publicity pawns, and they've got no chance of being on, on the grid at any point. And in fact, one of the, um, the main reasons for that, and this, I, I asked this question on many occasions, and was always given the same answer, um, well, why are there no female drivers? And I distinctly, one occasion, we're going on a boat um, down the Danube in, in Budapest, and, um, and a, a boss from McLaren said, there are great women drivers, they're very good, they're very competent, but they are not beautiful, they look like men. And it was so shocking to me because they said Formula One is about image. You know, we, we have, we, you know, there are products to sell. You're not going to get a drive unless you're, you look like a model. I didn't realize that the, that the drivers were selected on the basis of their, of their looks. I mean, it's not immediately well, obvious, <laughs> I guess, not knowing a lot about the sport. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I sort of say. I said, have you looked around the paddock? The, ma- the, the male drivers aren't all sort of Armani models. Um, but of course, women, unfortunately, and life often are judged primarily on on looks above above ability. Beverly, the is, of a substance argument. Yeah, is there? And that seems to be a massive, massive issue in sport even now. Is there an argument that physically women can't can or can't match up to men in this sport? Or uh, physically speaking, and researching your book, did you find that there's no reason why they actually this can't be a level playing field? There's no reason. I spoke to a few physiologists about that, and they said, actually, you know, Formula One is not man versus woman. It is um, human being versus the car. And there's no reason why the, uh, any woman couldn't train sufficiently hard to be able to withstand the rigors of a car. G-force is obviously a big, a big um, factor in Formula One. The male drivers do neck weights, and they strengthen that area of the body. Women can do that. That's not hard. And, in fact, women... Um, traditionally do well in extreme events that, endure, that involve an extreme of temperature. So Ironman events and, and um, a hot weather marathon, bad water, those sorts of things. Women do very well because women's bodies are very good at modu- uh, moderating um, and modulating temperature, sometimes in a way that male physiology isn't. So actually being in a two-hour race in Brazil would probably suit women fairly well. And also all the other things like hand-eye coordination and peripheral vision, um, you know, commitment, concentration, controlling anxiety, motivation. They're not gender-related in terms of psychology in, in any way. Um, you know, there's no real reason why either sex should have a a benefit in either of those. It's largely then cultural reasons within the sport, the, and you've outlined them really well, I think. Is there a chance that if it's not Susie Wolf, that maybe within the next few years there will be a woman driver, who, a female driver, who comes in and makes an impact and maybe that starts shattering the preconceptions or at least it forges a path that other women and other young girls can follow? It would be great, wouldn't it? Um you know, there was a study, it was a few years ago now, it was about 1997, so whether anyone's done anything since, that was by a psychologist called Judy Eaton, and she looked at licenses that were held in karting, um, and in the 8-14 age group, 40% of those licenses were held by girls. So karting is actually really popular with girls. And yet, beyond karting, female competitive license holders fall to about 2%. And what she discovered was there were various sort of societal pressures girls felt like it was a bit bo- a bit of a boy's sport it wasn't you know they wanted to do girlier things when those pressures of being a teenager start to kick in and you start to compare yourself with other people girls were dropping away but one of them um, i think she found the major factor 
is that it's quite expensive to support your child to do those sorts of activities. And the parents didn't see that supporting a girl to do those, um, to, to go through the ranks, was a good financial investment. For a boy, it might be, you know, at the end of the day, that could be their job. That could be their very lucrative career. If they, if they do well and they end up in the likes of Formula One, then they're set for life. And they didn't see that as a possibility for girls. And so the parents would say, well, you know, let's, let's not do that. Let's not bother. Let's go and do ballet swimming, horse riding, whatever it is, you know. So, you know, I think that, that, that turned out to be culturally the main, the main um, sort of um, prohibitive factor, I think, in terms of getting women through. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Beverly Turner of The Telegraph. The book, if people want to have a read of it, have a look at The Pits, The Real World of Formula One. I apologise for reminding you that that was 10 years ago that you brought that out, but thanks very much for talking to us. <laughs> Thank you. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Just a little more background on this because I wasn't necessarily aware of the history of female drivers in Formula One but Beverly sets it out really well in their piece. In 1958 there was the first, there was an Italian driver, Maria Teresa de Filippis who raced a few times after that, 75 and 76. Uh, Another Italian, Leila Lombardi, raced in 12 Grand Prix. She actually scored a championship point with a sixth place finish. There was a, a British driver at one point who failed to qualify in her races, a South African driver also. So uh, and of course, really sadly, a couple of years ago, um, in fact, it was October 2013, when Maria de Velotta, also a Williams test driver, um, died after a crash in a, a practice session that she had. Um, so, the, it, as I mentioned in the introduction to the piece, it's been sporadic enough over the years. We'll wait and see if there is going to be a, a breakthrough driver and whether Wolf is going to be that driver. But a French sports team that loses faith in its coach but turns things around by themselves, the players, that is, does it sound familiar, Murph? Uh, all too familiar yeah, we could across throw a in, variety of sports here I think we're thinking football we're thinking rugby in uh, 2011 but uh, can the current French team do this by the time they play Ireland impossible Six Nations decider let's ask Grenoble coach Bernard Jackman Bernard the Wales match was a bit of a one of many low points really for Philippe Saint-André so far but uh, the sense seems to be that maybe the players don't believe in their coach anymore yeah it's a bizarre I thought it was a bizarre performance I think um you know, all these French teams away from home, um, not putting in, I suppose, 100% or putting in good shifts. But just the fact that they were so poor, considering they come back on the back of two wins, you know, they weren't in a in a in a bad situation in the in the championship, and it was it was a real opportunity for them to go to Wales and um, you know get a get an away win and and pretty much put the championship in their own in their own hands. And uh, the way they performed, I think they haven't performed very well at home. I thought they were very lucky to beat England um, to play for 10 minutes against Italy. And uh, and that was that was good enough on the day because they've got such good individuals. But I thought the discipline, um, the attitude of, of, of some of their players. You know, I know that Pickamalls has been <coughs> he's been dropped from the squad. And uh, I, amazingly, to be honest, considering how badly they played and how obvious it looked like they were, um, there was discontent with San Andre. There's been actually no real strong rumours in France of of any dissent. And uh, that was a that was that I suppose that was something that was. Usually evident during Lievermont's reign, you know the the amount of I suppose um, leaks to the media that things weren't good and dissension and even you know comments made in the press um, you know openly that they weren't happy with Lievermont and um, there's been none of that to be honest and I think uh, certainly from what I can gather speaking to 
people who understand the French system and who understand the way the French rugby football union works that uh, they seem resigned to the fact that he's going to be there for the World Cup. To be honest, um, they, they, they seem to feel, believe that if it was a top fourteen club, he'd be gone. You know, he would have been gone. You know, last year, but because it's the French Federation and um, the way the, the political uh, manifestations of how that how that organisation works, that it's highly unlikely he, he will be sacked. So I don't know where that leaves the players, to be honest. Um, you know, knowing, knowing them, they can they, they obviously could bounce back uh, pretty easy. Maybe maybe it's a performance like that they need to to get their emotional uh, senses, uh, you know, on a high alert. But um, the problem the problem that I can see in, in the French team is that I think they've got phenomenal individuals and. Um, you know, I would disagree with with, with certain comments saying that it's because of the top fourteen. I, I I don't think it's a top fourteen problem. I I, I believe that um, there's plenty of good rugby played in top fourteen. There's a lot of good French players in it. The problem is, um, it's it's all based on the leadership of the group. You know, the coaching staff, to be honest. And I, I would say that a lot of it's down to the leadership of Son and Dre because a simple example is look at uh, look at the Welsh team that have been so successful under Warren Gatland in over the last six seven years. You know, you couldn't say that they don't play better, um, or they they're not transformed when they go into a Welsh squad uh, from what they were doing with the, with the regions. And it's similar, you know, it's similar to to the French players. I mean, if you look at Pascal Papier for Stade Francais at the moment, um, you know, he's he's he shows genuine leadership qualities. He's unbelievably consistent. Uh, he plays for the team, um, and he leads by example. You know, you watch uh, Picamos play for Toulouse. You know, he's. He's a proper, proper player, and then you watch them play for. There's only two guys. There's, there's countless examples, but you watch them play for for France recently, and um, they just don't see themselves. So I, I certainly believe that it's, it, the responsibility lies with the coaching group to to get guys to play to the potential and to buy into you know whatever that project um, is. Yeah, it's interesting. Project Brand or project is. Yeah, because in 2011, uh, you mentioned the Avermont there. The team, by all accounts, after all those leaks took over the running of the, uh, their own running basically and Thierry Doucetoir probably led that now Pascal Pape might be a different kind of character but French sporting teams seem to be one of the few countries in the world we remember this happening in the 2000 and, uh, was in the 2006 World Cup when Zidane and the others seemed to ignore Dominic and lead their side towards a, into a World Cup final 2011 in the Rugby World Cup they get to a final is there enough about the French playing group that they could actually just take this over themselves and drive it on? I, I don't think so, but I, I think that, obviously, listen, as you say, Dusator was, uh, he's been well documented that he, he was massive in, in New Zealand and they came within a couple of minutes of winning the World Cup. Mm. They were probably uh, very harshly done by, uh, by the referee and that talent is still there, you know, um, they still have individuals that under day can beat any team in the world. Uh, even if the best, if the other teams play to their potential, uh, they actually can do that. But, I think if you look at this current group, and particularly uh, um, the spine, I don't think I don't think Pape uh, has the same will have the same ability to get everyone on side as 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 uh, Dusator did. I think that Para Para has been out of the loop, and um, you know, Sandro has picked him back in the squad now. But it's obvious that it's very hard for him to come in having not been not been part of the plans and really take a tingle from the neck. Their ten situation, you know, there's no natural leader there. Um, Pilasan is just new to the game. Talles is, is, is very inexperienced, and uh, Trinduk, you know, was left out of the original squad, and San Andres said he doesn't have faith in them. So um, there's a lot of things going against those guys. You look at two of their best players. Well, their best players is Wesley Fofana. He he's known for, he, 
for his playing ability more so than his, his off-field stuff. So, um, but it was interesting. I was talking to uh, another foreigner who plays here. He's doing his coaching badges. and He had a, a course yesterday and um, they had a sports psychology module, you know, and um, there's only a couple of foreigners in the class. The rest are all French coaches and the sports psychology uh, sports psychologist was was talking about mindset, about uh, positive energy, about um, Im- uh, using imagery and yeah. all the things that that, that, that that go into basically creating the right environment for players. And the French players were saying, listen, you're crazy. This is never going to work in France, whatever, because we're Latin. And he was saying, well, listen, I've been doing this job for 20 years um, and you know your predecessors, the guys who are coaching you now had the same argument. But you know, when are, who's going to start the revolution? Who is actually going to ch- get away from saying we're Latin um, we can afford to, we can afford to throw our toys out of the pram. We can afford to be inconsistent because we're Latin. I mean, it's it's uh, for me, it's a, it's a rubbish excuse, you know. And it's it's interesting that even now, you know, there's at least for me, I'm actually impressed that guys who are actually coaching the coaches here understand that it's a problem. Um, but unless unless the next generation take it on board and realise that uh, if they keep making the same mistakes as their as their predecessors, if they don't change their attitude uh, towards modern high performance. Um, it's going to be the it's going to be the same same old story. And and I think that that's the problem, as you say, in this French team at the moment. It's very hard to see who will actually have the power uh, to take things by the scruff of the neck. And also, if if the players believe that San Andre is going to be there in the World Cup, um, you know, it's 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 also uh, increasing that air of negativity about it. You know, yeah, and, it sounds uh, good, Bernard. Uh, to be honest, the, the situation described there is a, a coach who will remain in situ at least for the rest of this yeah. season, and probably into the World Cup. Uh, from an Irish yeah. point of view, we, we got to look at this and say this coach, even if there are no leaks or anything like that, clearly he's yeah. not getting the best out of his players, and those players aren't quite driven enough or don't have the qualities to take it over themselves. Yeah. So, can we forget about all this? historical baggage that we carry to trips to Paris and expect that we should be able to go over there uh, assuming we take care of Italy go and actually beat France and win a championship Yeah 100% I have no doubt we can go to, to go to Paris and I'm not I'm not worried about history and I think Joe Schmidt won't be worried about history um, you know I think the Twickenham was going to be a harder place to go to than Paris because you knew England were going to perform to a certain level um, and you knew England were going to be very hard to break down and you knew England were going to play for each other and, and work for, for 80 minutes plus um, whereas you can't say the same about about, about France and watching if you were going to, if you were do, to do a from a coach's point of view to do a um, an attacking or a, attacking and defending uh, defensive preview of, of of the French you'd be saying listen if we implement our structures and Ireland have looked very very good on things that they can actually control um, so far they've been very very good about where they've lost their shape a little bit against England was stuff that they couldn't control like a little turnover turnover ball and. And a lot to be made of the Rob Kearney drop call, but that actually came from a scrum we won against the head, and that's that's what comes with actually playing together and understanding. So Joe had had us very well drilled and, and plum tree in less case for everything off set phase as such. It's just where we lost our way a little bit was when it became unstructured. Um, and I think if we go to we'll have, we'll have another game, we'll have another three weeks preparation before we go to Paris. We'll be a little bit further ahead in that. And if we just limit France's ability to play off the cuff rugby, um, and how you do that is by you be very, very controlled in, in your exits, you're very controlled in your kicking game, and you're, you're relentless in terms of your ball your ball recycling, um, they don't actually look like they're actually going to create a whole lot more. So um, and that, that's, that's, that's why I'd be very, very confident that we can go there and win, because we're actually quite good at controlling, controlling a huge amount of what goes on. And France are a team who live off um, the little mistakes, the sloppiness, 
Um, and that's that's where their natural brilliance comes in. But I think that Smith will be able to put together a plan that will limit their ability to do that. And what, on what we've seen so far, um, their structured play, their planned attack, uh, won't give us a huge amount of problems. Bernard, great stuff. Thank you. Thanks a lot. One thing I will say for the sports federations in France, certainly in rugby mm. and football, is they have a lot of patience for their coaches. Dominic had to be there an awful long time before that marriage came to an end. Six years. Well, he got to the World Cup final. Yeah, but this is the point. Did he get to the World Cup final? Um, yes. Uh, it would Did have he have been any difficult, difficult to argue that he didn't, you know? Uh, was he responsible for that? Or I, I, players? I wouldn't say so, but who, you know, can we, can we say who was responsible? Maybe he would have won the World Cup if it hadn't been for Zidane. <laughs> Those pesky players of his. <laughs> I'm not Zidane entirely sure. Yeah, I'm not yeah. entirely uh, sure. You know, I, I can see how he... Uh, what What is mystifying about Dominic is how he managed to survive beyond Euro 2008, which was such a disaster for France. And, you know, whatever about the, the obvious doubts everyone had about him coming in, in, into 2006, the fact that he got to the World Cup final was kind of like, what can you do? You know, if you're the FA, you're, the guy gets the World Cup final. Everyone was saying, oh, France, you're not going to do anything. You're in the World Cup final. You lose on penalties. You kind of have to give the guy the next two years. You know, it's it's sort of, sorry, you've massively exceeded all our expectations. You're sacked, you know? Mm. But you're 2008. I can't believe that, you know, that that was the point at which really, and they paid for it, I guess, then in... Everyone paid for it. Oh, everyone paid for it, not just the French. I should also say that historical baggage that I mentioned there isn't necessarily accurate. That, there's almost a sense that psychologically we can't win in France. The point is that France are usually a better team than us when we play them in Paris. Yeah. or certainly have been, and I don't believe that's necessarily the case. There have been year. a couple fact, of times. Not the case this year. Yeah, there have been a couple of times when we've gone with big expectations and we've gotten a hammer. Yeah. you know, which is kind of. You know, it's it's not the same as losing either. You know, we have been hammered. But usually, going those big expectations have been based largely on our own form as opposed to French weaknesses there haven't been too many times we've gone over thinking France will be poor Yeah. whereas and I know there's a cliche about them you don't know what, which France are but I think they just are a poor side they have been for two years so let's hope that they don't suddenly decide to be yes. uh, upping Good the quality yeah, yeah exactly we'll be back a little bit later on that's it for the time being but we'll have second captain's football loads more on the Champions League week in the meantime thanks very much Murph thank you Owen thank you Ken thank you Karen. thank you Owen thanks guys thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 